History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 263rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, I'm bringing you a location that is in Cannon City, Colorado. It's the Holy Cross Abbey, and I'm going to be joined by four other people. We're going to have our listener, Cheryl Lynn, who suggested this location to me, and her friend, Dennis Batchelor of Simply Ghosts, and two other investigators, Cindy and Sean, and they're going to share the history and the paranormal experiences that they've had here at the Abbey, and they've had a lot of them. I think you're really going to enjoy this. You probably can tell by the sound of my voice that I have been hit by the evil demon known as Summer Cold. So sorry that my voice is going to be a little bit off and I sound a little stuffy. Thankfully, we recorded the interview before I got hit with this and they do most of the talking so you won't have to listen to uh, my stuffiness through the entire show. Before we get into talking about the Abbey, we have some people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. Tazara, Matthew, Sarah with an H, Mandy, Sue Ann, Angel, Jeffrey, Katie with an I-E, Ashley and Terry with an I. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment in oddity. The eruption of Hawaii's Kilauea volcano started on May 3rd, 2018. This is an eruption that has wreaked havoc on the island, but it has also spawned something else. It's been raining little green crystals. That's right, little gems from the sky. What the crystals actually are is a mineral found in basaltic lava that is known as olivine. Olivine is formed in hot and deep magmas, and eruptions bring it to the surface. The reason the olivine seems to be falling from the sky is that it's been carried up with spewing lava. The green mineral is found in all sorts of rocks in Hawaii. There's even a green sand beach. The crystals are heavier than sand, so when the ocean rolls in with waves and pulls the sand back out, the green crystals are left behind. And while olivine seems to be a common mineral in Hawaii, having it fall from the sky is an unusual event, and certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. month of June on the 24th in 1948, Soviet Russia began a blockade of Berlin known as the Berlin Blockade. The Berlin Blockade lasted nearly a year, ending on May 12, 1949. It was one of the first major international crises of the Cold War. This left West Berliners isolated and without food and other supplies. 
The Allies, which were made up of air crews from the United States Air Force, the British Royal Air Force, the French Air Force, the Royal Canadian Air Force, the Royal Australian Air Force, the Royal New Zealand Air Force, and the South African Air Force, responded with an emergency airlift that ended up being 278,000 flights, delivering 2.3 million tons of food, coal, and medical supplies. The Soviets allowed the airlifts to continue without disruption because they feared starting a war. The operation was so successful that it was delivering more supplies than had been previously transported into the city by rail. The Allies continued their deliveries until September of 1949. The Roman Catholic Church purchased 90 acres of land in Cannon City, Colorado, formerly known as Fruitmere Orchards, from Captain Benjamin F. Rockefeller for the Benedictine Society of Colorado. The Benedictines called the new religious foundation the Holy Cross Abbey. The main building was constructed in 1924 and rises to four stories and was designed by Joseph Dillon and L.A. Desjardins with a collegiate Gothic and Jacobian revival style. This was not only a monastery, but it also was a boarding school for boys. There were bigger plans for the property, but the Depression put a stop to those. This location has been the scene of many suicides and other deaths, and it seems that this has led to haunting activity. And now I'm going to be joined by my special guests as they regale us with the history and the hauntings that are going on here at Holy Cross Abbey. I am so excited. I am joined by Sherilyn, Dennis Batchelor, and they have their friends, Cindy and Sean, with them as well. And they are going to be talking to us about the Holy Cross Abbey, the history, and of course, the hauntings that are happening there. And this is in Colorado. So this is a state that I used to live in. So I'm really excited to hear about a place that unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see while I was living there. Now I'm going to have to go back and see it. Welcome to the show, guys. How are you? Good. Good. Awesome. Well, the first thing I always ask everybody is, what got you into the paranormal? And Dennis, why don't we start with you? Okay. Actually, it's, it's kind of funny because it was a possible UFO abduction thing that, that got me started. And that was back in the 1970s. To, the, to this day, I don't claim that I was abducted. I was just trying to see what happened to a particular time loss. And I won't go into details about that story, but it led me to... Ed and Lorraine Warren, and obviously back in the early 70s, we didn't have the uh, internet and whatnot to contact one another, so everything was through snail mail, and it's like I'd write them a letter and, and send it off, and they'd get it about three weeks, they'd start responding to it, so a month later, I might get a response to the questions that I was asking and whatnot, and, and at the time, they were kind of the leading authorities of the paranormal stuff, because it's not, it wasn't as popular mm-hmm. then as it is now. And so even though I didn't quite agree with some of their ideas and philosophy, they, they still kind of nurtured me through all these letters back and forth and kind of sparked my interest more so in, into the uh, paranormal direction. Then I bought, I, I didn't buy the house, but I was renting a house before I bought my house. It just happened to be on, and if you're from Colorado, I don't know if you were in, in the Denver area or, or whatnot, but there are major streets that run north and south through one end of Denver to the other end. One of the, the main thoroughfares was called Wadsworth. Well, mm-hmm. Wadsworth, Wadsworth had the Wadsworth Ranch, and it consumed about 10,000 acres. And just by dumb luck, I had rented the old Hans house from, of course, Ben Wadsworth had, had died. This person that, that owned the house was renting the house. I, I was doing remodeling stuff on the house in exchange for some of the rent there. At any rate, we had the old ranch hand house. And as you went out the back door, uh, you go down some steps, 
somebody had enclosed the back part of the building so that the old cellar door was actually underneath this addition that they added on. And then you could go either into the backyard from there or you could go down into the cellar. And at the time I was doing black and white photography, even me, and I'm, I'm short and fat, still handsome, <laughs> but, but at any rate, I couldn't stand up in the, the cellar because it was only about four foot. So I asked the, the owner if I could dig out the cellar enough that I could do my darkroom stuff down there. He said he didn't have a problem with that. Well, for the, that next week, every night when I got home, I'd go down and I'd dig for about a half an hour or so. And about the third night, I dug up a, a bunch of child's toys, an old rosary, and a plastic bag with, uh, believe it or not, Davy Crockett's uh, obituary in it. Whoa. I start to tell you, in the backyard, there was the uh, remainders of two foundations. They were like, like 12 by 16, one going east east and west, and then another foundation off in the other corner of the yard going north and south. Later on, I found out that the family that lived there originally and and was running the ranch for Ben Wadsworth, they had, there was a family in this little tiny house of 16, including the parents. They had big families and there was, so an epidemic went through in the early 1900s and killed half, like seven of the the children. Uh daughters and and three of the sons. Well, I found out that even though the main house was only about 600, 700 square feet, the back part where those foundations were, were bunkhouses. The girls had a bunkhouse and the boys had a bunkhouse. So when they lost all those children, somebody had buried their rosary and some of their old toys and stuff underneath in that cellar. And I dug them up unknowingly. So long story short, we had been there, and just shortly after I dug all that stuff up, I went to one night, closed the back door, and it had the old, old-time old dead where you have to kind of flip it down in order for it to latch the deadbolt, the old skeleton key doorknob, only we had glass doorknob. And I went to lock that deadbolt one night, leading down to the cellar, and as I started to walk up to it, I was about two or three feet away from it, and the doorknob started spinning really, really slow clockwise. Mm faster and faster and faster and then it just stopped wow that's weird yeah i was like uh 18 or 19 i'm kind of i'm kind of thinking i wish dad was here about it now (laughs) (laughs) wondering if i should open the door and look behind the door or i opted just to reach reach over and flip the deadbolt and lock it i never looked to see if there was anything behind that door but again it, it it just sparked my interest into the paranormal and then i got hooked because more and more things happened into that that house that were just so incredible. I was hooked. I was hooked. And, and I, my enthusiasm switched from the UFO stuff into the, the paranormal. And, and as I say, that was about the mid-70s then, I guess. And ever since then, I've been doing it. So I've, I've been on hundreds, probably thousands of investigations now. That's great. I used to live at 120th and Wadsworth, so I know exactly what you're talking about there with that street. <laughs> yeah, Wadsworth Boulevard. Yeah. Um, and this was in Old Town, Arvada. That was part of the Ben Wadsworth sure. Ranch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know exactly where that is. My sister used to live in Arvada as well. Well, to think it was almost an anal probe from aliens that got you started in all this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's still an interesting story. I, there's four hours I can't account for. Wow. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying I was abducted. I, I'm just saying that's where I, that's kind of where I started. Sure. It's weird enough to make you want to find out more for sure. When you lose four hours, that's not normal. Well, Cheryl, what got you interested in the paranormal? That's it. Good question. I mean, I've always been interested in it. I was thinking back like when I was a young kid and teenager and I was always 
interested in it, but I really never did much. And then later on, well, and I think also being in, in nursing and working on night shifts and seeing some, mm. you see some crazy things. Sure. And it makes you wonder. Back in 2004, you know, I bought a, a house that both of the previous owners had passed away in of natural causes and several years apart. To me, I felt they were still there. I mean, I had some strange things happening. So I started getting involved with some paranormal groups and, and exploring it more and doing some investigations and becoming really involved with the paranormal community. And it just kind of went on from there. And here I am still doing it. Great. And Cindy and Sean, if you guys want to chime in and, and talk about your interest in the paranormal, you're more than welcome to. They're pointing at you. Back and forth we go. Um, <laughs> this is Sean. My uh, my parents worked in uh, this field for quite a while in the 70s along, this, along the same timeline that Dennis was talking about. Uh, they did a little more of the uh, mediumship side of things on the paranormal and help mm-hmm. people. In, in personal residences and so forth. But I wasn't really interested in it. I came out of the military of 26 years, met Dennis. Part of it really was just so much, thing, so many things that actually happened at the Abbey. Is You know, it's right down the line of what we're talking about, which is a wonderful location, the Holy Cross Abbey. And I saw a, a full-bodied apparition at the Abbey, and I'm like, okay, I got I to gotta see if this is something that is entirely true, or am I looking at things from a post-traumatic stress disorder issue, coming out of the military, coming out of Afghanistan, you're sure. going, okay. And after that, I Dennis knows I went into equipment, equipment, equipment. It's all about the equipment. <laughs> and just to validate this, and it's just so many, so many wonderful different uh, interactions and so forth uh, with the paranormal, and it's just expanded mm-hmm. from there. I really enjoy helping people, and with a sense of purpose coming out of the Air Force of 26 years, I just felt like this was the right thing to do is join a team, then lead a team to help others in businesses or homes. Well, thank you for your service, Sean. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. How about you, Cindy? Well, I always had an interest in, in the paranormal world and really didn't go looking for it um, until one day went to Gettysburg and stayed in a a building from the Civil War period had a hundred bullet holes on it. It was wow. a makeshift little and started having experiences that were unexplainable. And it almost becomes an addiction. <laughs> you get Definitely. hooked. And again, then in comes the equipment to validate things. In 2005 is when I started basic EMF meter. More of the experiences were being touched, chandeliers being moved, objects being misplaced, re- replaced in your room from Juhart singing, um, like a harmonica playing the soldiers uh, marching through the building, chanting to footsteps in the attic. It, it just went on and on. So it became more of you know, a fascination to just keep, keep going with it. And then from there, I started exploring other places you know, around the Queen Mary and things like that, and just kind of escalated until, of course, I met Dennis and uh, started coming out to the Abbey and Stanley Hotel. And so I think the more that you experience the more you want more experiences to happen. Sure. And being a little you know, intuitive to it, it helps in that aspect. Yeah. So Dennis has brought all of us together. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> he has. He has. All of his events, he invited everybody to, he, you know, hosted events and stuff. And that's how we all met. Basically what I do is go across the country and I find these venues that are nonprofit 
falling apart that are or strategic history is kind of my thing i love history and i would find them and and they obviously were getting private funding and they were just limping along and i would hold these events and then give 100 percent of the proceeds back to that that venue to to go towards restoration and nice. stuff like that and so that's kind of what i did and, and that's part of my simply goes dot com is that was our efforts is to keep these venues alive for future generations Well, I love that because, you know, sometimes people get a little bit upset that some of these historic locations are running ghost tours and letting people come and investigate. And I've never really had an issue with that because I know that that's what's helping put a new roof on that building and getting the restoration going because sometimes there's no other way to get that done. And since it's so popular, it's a great way to make money to do that. So I appreciate that you're doing that as well. Yeah, thank you. Well, I have been down to Canyon City to the Royal Gorge and that is just beautiful down there. But I don't really know much about the city. Did you want to share a little bit about the town? The city originated in 1856, and it started out as a territorial prison for the state of Colorado. And there wasn't nothing in Canyon City other than the, the prison. And then eventually, several years, they started building up a main street. And then, of course, the, the families needed schools, so they put in the school system. And Canyon City then got the railroad station through there, and and then that's what kicked off the town. Uh, Railroad uh, brought in all the business, and the town took off from that. Later on, then Royal Gorge, I think, it it started coming around in the 1930s. And, of course, it wasn't built, I don't think, until the 1950s, the the expansion bridge. But it was still a popular tourist area, given the fact that, you know, I mean, back in that day, uh, those days, Roads were were sketch at best. I mean, they're not like anything we had. Our worst roads that we complain about were great highways to them back in the day. But from there, in the 1950s, then Canyon City became the capital. And a lot of people don't know this part of uh, about Canyon City, but it became the Ku Klux Klan headquarters. Oh, geez. Midwest states. And it was actually head, headquartered out of a an old abandoned hotel now that I understand is actually auctioned off, but the St. Cloud was a great big four-story structure that sat on Main Street, and that was the headquarters for the Ku Klux Klan. Now, I've, I've been lucky enough to be one or two people, and I, I, I was able to do it twice, investigate the hotel after it, after it closed down, and if you go up to the fourth floor, this fourth floor there's, actually has suites in it, and if you open up the closet doors on some of these suites, you would find wooden ladders going down to the second floor and behind the elevator. Then if you stop the elevator between floors, then you could climb down the stairs underneath the elevator shaft down to the tunnel systems that ran parallel to to Main Street there. And that's how the Ku Klux Klan members would go to the brothels or or go to their meetings or, or, you know, that's how you could leave the hotel and come back to the hotel without ever being seen. It also connected to the depot and to one of the local brothels. It, it was interesting when the Ku Klux Klan would have meetings. Um, there, there's old photographs and stuff that you can find where they're saying, um, uh, you know, in, in order to kind of keep it a secret that they were having a meeting that night, uh, the guy at the drugstore would put out a sign, ice cold Coca-Cola, but cold Coca-Cola was spelled KKK. Uh-huh. And they, there was a meeting that night. And then it was up to them to figure out where it was being held and where he met. So that was interesting in itself. But but the Abbey came in, the Holy Cross Abbey, it was originally owned by Rockefellers and it was fruit mirror orchards. 
and it consumed 680 acres. Archdiocese came in, and the Rockefellers sold them the, I think, 280 acres for the price of a dollar to, to take over that property. So they took over the property, and the initial idea, Joseph Dillon and, and Jason Ardeen, they were the architect for Notre Dame. And that was mm. kind of the idea between the, uh, with the Abbey was this was going to be like a Camp David for the Pope. They were going to build a, a huge football stadium and, and all these little outbuildings that had its own power plant. It was going to become, like I say, the, the next uh, vacation place for the Pope. Well, then the Depression hit in 1932. Father Cyprius A. Bradley, who was the first, the first abbot at the Holy Cross, he was not a good finance guy, and they were already $2 million over budget, and they'd only built the monastery, which is five stories if you include the basement, and then they had the dormitories for the boys called Ullathorne Hall. Those were the only two buildings that were built, and they were already $2 million uh, in the hole. Now, you gotta, you got to remember, this is 1928, 1930. That was a massive, massive debt. Yeah, you know, that's a lot of money. So... He just about broke the abbey, and there was discussion between the archdiocese if, if they just scrapped the whole idea. They brought in another uh, uh, another abbot to replace Father Bradley, and he was able to turn the whole works around. And that was, I can't remember his first name, but it was Father Ulithorn. <laughs> he, he managed to bring the, the, the uh, abbey back into the black. Now, the abbey then, it became, it, it started out, it, it had... Um, 75, 75 students from all over the world. Some of them were rich families that would send their, their boys to boarding school. Some of them were problem kids that this was the last resort before they went to prison. So it was kind of a mixed population of, of boys going to school there. But by after the first year, they had grown to over 400 kids, and, and it continued to grow from there. Now, the Abbey produced their own own vegetables, their own livestock. They were totally independent from the, the town of, of Canyon City. And at that time, they were they were actually like three miles out of the city limits of Canyon City there. So this all went well and good. But in 2001, the Archdiocese says, okay, we're done. We're not making any money anymore. We're going to desanctify the property and no longer have any anything to do with it from a religious standpoint. We're going to sell it off to whoever come up with the first six million dollars. And they did. And this private investment company ended up buying it, a bunch of investors. And that's what it is today is uh, these these folks. Uh, it's still a nonprofit. And they rent out some of the buildings to the Department of Corrections for training. They've got some out uh, for I think it's the University of Oklahoma has a few uh, classrooms up there for the summer programs that they put on as a university. And that's pretty much their operational fees and, and the monies that they, they collect to keep the Abbey going today. Now, one other thing, they did build a, an event center. There they do weddings and, and just about anything you want to rent the hall for any kind of an event. But the main monastery, the, the three floors are, are empty. They're starting to fall apart. They had some real bad water damage that was on the fourth floor leaking down to the third floor and taking out the ceiling. And, of course, once you get that water damage, it just keeps going on and going. And they couldn't – they didn't have the money to fix the roof. And that's one thing that I'm proud that through our events, we were able to, to raise almost $30,000 and got the roof fixed. Good. So, anyways, that's kind of a little history about the town, the, 
give you a lot there, the, the town, the Ku Klux Klan, and then the Abbey. Now, that was a problem, too. I, I kind of wanted to point that out. That was a big problem to the Ku Klux Klan. The archdiocese were constantly feuding. Obviously, they had different interests in mind, and, and it was a big problem. It was the people from the monastery that would go into town, the, the monks and whatnot, were being harassed through the clansmen and stuff like that. And there was a lot of bad blood. Obviously, they didn't like the, the archdiocese even being in town. Kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> well, that would kind of mess up their prospects of going over to the bordello. So that explains why they would have their little secret tunnel system. I've never heard of anything so elaborate to put ladders behind elevators and, and then these tunnel systems to go. Because a lot of the main cities, you know, like Denver itself had some tunnels so that some of these important men could get around to the bordellos and gambling halls and uh, places to drink during Prohibition, and they would do it through a tunnel system. But I had not heard that Canyon City had the same thing, especially that you would kind of access it through these hotel, you know, ladders and things like that. And of course, now if you go to the the town, any of the town officials, they'll deny that they even exist. Sure. Because because most of the tunnels have been concreted off or blocked off, or they have been so that they're inaccessible now. But I was personally in them. I know that they do exist. On on two occasions, I went through the old brothel. I also investigated the the Rio Grande Hotel, which was the old brothel on the other side of the railroad tracks, and and there was a tunnel that led from the St. Cloud to that particular brothel. But on Rio Grande, that wall had been uh, sealed off and you couldn't you couldn't get to the tunnel, but that's where you ended up if you went from the uh, St. Cloud through the tunnels to heading that direction across the railroad tracks. Yeah, so there's no doubt what they were doing there. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously we have some hauntings that are going on here. And one of the things that I like to hear first is maybe some of the reasons why we would have a haunting, like if people have died there and then if you would share some of the experiences that people have had, including yourself, when you've been at the Abbey. As far as, and I'm, I'm one because I, I, I do like to report historic facts, and I don't go by hearsay or, or stories until I can chase them down. And, and I'm the type that, that I'll go to the coroner's office, I'll go to the historical society, I'll go to the sheriff's department, I'll go to the police department, and I will find the legal documents stated by, you know, firsthand accounts instead of the hearsay and the stories. By, by doing so, I, I was able to immediately debunk a lot of the stories. But to find information on the Abbey in particular was one of the hardest places that I'd ever tried to find any historic information because the archdiocese handled everything internally. They didn't mm -hmm. go to the police. They didn't go to normal sources like the outside public would. They kept it within themselves, and they policed the, the monks and the priests and the bad children internally. So you, there's not a whole lot you can go in and, and say validate by finding articles or police records or something like that. So it was very difficult. Sure. But the, the few that I did find, there was several, several su suicides that took place. There was, of course, there's nobody likes to talk about it, but there was some molestation stuff that went on. Mm -hmm. There is some factual stuff because there, there was one priest in particular, his last name is Chung, and I don't recall his first name. Uh, and he's actually buried in the cemetery towards the outside fence there at the Abbey. But he was accused of molesting one of the little boys. And as he was, you know, of course, he, he denied it and whatnot. And in the meantime, uh, he had a friend in 
Colorado Springs, they had decided that they were going to come up and arrest him. They had they felt they had enough evidence to to go ahead and have a trial. Well, his friend had called him. He called and, and let him know that they were getting ready to come up and arrest him. The story went that on the fourth floor, he picked one of the rooms and then hung himself. So when authorities got there, they found him hanged in one of the rooms. The fact of the matter is, first off, each level of the the arch the, the monasteries is kind of like the levels are according to, to almost like rank. You have the abbots and the, that would stay on the first floor, the priests that stay on the second floor, the monks would be on the third floor, and then the boys would stay on the fourth floor because it was always the hottest in the summer and the coldest in the winter. So the most comfortable people were obviously the priest and the monk or the the abbots on the lower part of the thing. So the fact that this monk committed suicide on the fourth floor didn't make sense to me because he shouldn't have even been on the fourth floor. So as I started investigating it, I went into the, the coroner's report, coroner's office, got the, the official report, and he died of asphyxiation. However, what the, the truth behind the story, then I got the police report, he ended up, when he found out that they were coming to get him, he actually went out in the parking lot, ran a hose from his exhaust into his vehicle, and then asphyxiated himself with the exhaust fumes from his car. Uh. Now, he still claimed that he was innocent, but didn't want to the embarrassment mm-hmm. to come to the Abbey and the Archdiocese, and, and so he chose that was the best way for him to go out. So obviously he was never tried and convicted, but there was suspicion that the accusations were true. So that was one of the stories and, and one that I was able to debunk partially from the story, you know, of him hanging himself, but he did die through asphyxiation. There was another one in 2001, there was a period where where the the Abbey was actually closed down, didn't open up till 2006 again, but they had a caretaker on the property that was uh, overseeing the property and, and taking care, keeping, you know, homeless people out and whatnot. In 2006, somebody broke into Ullathorne Hall, picked one of the, the rooms that overlook the soccer field outside the window, and uh, ended up shooting himself in the head. And he left a note that he wanted to be seen by anyone that would ever look in that window. So that was his whole idea, shooting himself. And, and it is, it's in, in that particular room, it was the dining room of Ullathorne Hall. It did overlook, as I said, the soccer field, but it was also the biggest picture window on that side of the building. So obviously, if somebody was in that window, you would see them in, in the thing. Now, I've never heard of anybody report that they saw it, but Ullathorne Hall itself, and, and I think just about every one of us in this room have a story about Ullathorne. The monastery has a lot of activity, kids, everything from kids to people talking to touching. There's down in the potato cellar, there's an angry priest or a, or a monk. They've, they've caught apparitions of a like like a cardinal down there with a big robe and everything. Weird. Uh, a fleer walking down down the hallway. They've caught I don't know how many EVPs. I don't know how many disembodied voices. I mean, every time we go to this place, everyone always has an experience, whether it be personal or something we capture on film or EVPs, but something is always going on. We haven't had but one person get physically attacked, and that, that was a couple of years ago. Yeah. yeah. Pushed. Pushed. And, yeah, you look Yep. Yeah. And, and speaking of the 
the, the man who committed suicide in, at Elothorn Hall. I knew nothing about that when we were doing the investigations, and everyone was you know, trying to communicate with the boys. I kept picking up, and, and I have nothing to prove that this, but I kept picking up a, a sad man who was just very sad. And I'm like thinking to myself, why am I picking up that somebody committed suicide here? And I finally got brave enough to ask Dennis, would he like a man kill himself here? And that's when he, he told me about that. You know, everyone else was like trying to communicate with the kids' spirits. And I'm sitting back going, I feel this heavy sadness. It was it was just interesting that he said, then he told me that. I'm like, oh, okay. Interesting that you felt that and that it registered with you to be like, somebody killed themselves. I just had that that overwhelming feeling of sadness and despair and you know, and I knew it was a, the boys' hall, so why is there this gentleman there, that this man in here that I'm picking up? So I, I finally got up brave enough to ask. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was I was like, oh, okay, well, now I, now I understand why I was picking that up. But yeah, there's always something going on in that place. Well, let me ask you this, because child ghosts have always fascinated me. Obviously, this was a boarding school for boys. So are you getting a feeling that when you are running into some of these children ghosts that it's residual or is it intelligent? And is it because we had some boys who had died there? Or what do you think is going on there? It's hard to say because theoretically, well, the the age bracket was 7 to to 19 years old. But we in Ulithorn Hall, we finished up investigations at 4 o'clock in the morning We've left a couple of recorders upstairs, a couple of recorders downstairs, just to run after the building cleared, and we, we were going home or over to uh, the sister's house where we always slept, and the place was locked up, not anybody in the building, and we got over a half an hour of kids laughing and, and playing like hide-and-go-seek or something. You could hear their, their footsteps, and you could hear them laughing, but these were little tiny children. Hmm. This building is in very bad uh, disrepair. I mean, it doesn't. It's, it's got very minimal electricity. We wear masks because it, it has some uh, asbestos issues, mm-hmm. and the building is is in pretty bad shape. There's no, trust me, there was no no kids in there at four o'clock in the morning, and yet we caught the like I say, we got a full half an hour on two recorders, two two different recorders of these kids running up and down the hallway all night. Why? I don't know because there's not any any there wasn't any kids allowed at that in that age bracket. So I don't know if it's something residual from maybe back when it was the Fruitmeyer Farms uh-huh. or it was you know because it was built on that ground. Now there was some a story of a little girl that drowned in the irrigation ditch that ran through there to that fed the orchards and whatnot but not a group of kids. So I can't figure that part out. A lot of the hauntings and, and the people or the the spirits that we've come in contact with, they're, you know, there's some girls. It was an all-boys school, so why would, why would we come across little girls? I can't figure that out. You know, there's a lot of questions with the Abbey, but I can guarantee you that there's so much activity at both locations, you'll leave scratching your head every single time. So when you get some of these EVP, what kind of messages are coming through to you on them? We get anything from from one word to sentences. And Sean's got some pretty spectacular uh, okay. EVPs. Well, one of, one of the EVPs that I captured just on the main, main floor was uh, what sounds like or indicates somebody recognizing me and 
says my name. Oh, so it was it was quite intriguing for me because that was actually one of the first EVPs I, I captured. So I'm thinking what maybe they're since this is the first time I've been here, they're recognizing who I am and saying that that's Sean. And it really it literally it sounds like Sean. And so oh, I'm like, oh, that's quite interesting. Um, that's that's just one of the obviously the many. Thank you. So that would be more than interesting to me. That's like I might have to pee my pants and run. <laughs> if it's said my first of all, saying my name would be bad enough, but in that way, <laughs> people have uh, told me that, but I think it just intrigues me a little more uh-huh. just to to dive into that piece of it. It's definitely been very, very interesting. On I believe the second floor, I captured what uh, sounds like a female with an Irish sounding accent that seems to be talking to a, a younger lady. Um, it's not really a clear. It's not a class A EVP, but I, it's intriguing. And okay, this is not something I've run into again. So I haven't heard the Irish sounding female again, but it's like a one once in a blue moon, you get some interesting things that are, that are added into this location. And that's just a couple of the examples. And I've gotten easily over, I'd say about 900 EVPs in, in the Abbey over the times. Wow, that is a lot because, you know, some people are lucky to even get one in a location. That is amazing. You're getting that much activity. I wonder, do you think it has anything to do with the fact that this was a religious place, that maybe that's why it has such an increased amount of activity? Personally, I don't don't think that has a whole lot to do with it. Again, I I think it's more of, I guess, maybe the the energy that individuals are bringing to that location. Mm-hmm. And it could be, you know, coming from a, a bad experience that they carry on and kind of leave there. I think there's a, a lot of kids now. Now, there are some, some kids that went to the Abbey School, and it was the most wonderful time of their life. They, they, they loved everything about it. They fit right in. It was uh, a turning point in their lives, and they went on to be, you know, very productive and, and uh, outstanding people in the community, and, and it was it was just a wonderful experience. But I do know of stories where it was a nightmare, an endless nightmare for some of those kids. Uh, there's one particular story, again, at, at Ulithorn Hall, about a little entity that we came across. And, and I say we, I'm, I've never claimed to be psychic or any of that. I'm, I'm strictly scientific, and I use equipment and try to validate through that way. And then I, I, as I said, through historic fact, I'm able to validate information. But I'm not a psychic by any means. Sean, Cheryl, they, they both are. And then there's on, on this one particular occasion, I was with uh, Gypsy Moon. She's down in Dothan, Alabama. And we were having an interactive conversation. First off, she asked me, is there a small room where it's not a closet, but, but bricks on both sides and a small door? And, and, and I know the place pretty, pretty well. What she was describing is where the Ulithorn was built in three sections. And there's actually a section where the walls don't even touch that's only about a foot and a half wide. And they decided to put all the plumbing pipes through that little corridor. And it's not even really part of the building. It's just kind of they put a roof over the, the two breezeways to marry the building together. And so I told her about that. She got down, and all of a sudden, immediately, personality changed. And I'm I'm leaned against the wall, and I'm probably five foot away from where she's knelt down on the floor. And she's talking to this child. Well, she gets 
out of this child. His name was Ken. He didn't like to be called Kenneth. He didn't like to be called Kenny. His name was Ken. So she says, there's a nice man behind me. This is Dennis. He wouldn't mind if you touched him. Why don't you go ahead and touch him? Immediately, my hand got so ice cold. I mean, my, my whole arm was, was like frozen. I didn't see anything. She says, oh, oh, is that you touching my hair? And on video, you can see, and I, again, I'm not close enough that I can even, even touch her. We're the only two in the building. But you can see her hair being rolled up. Wow. So this, all of a sudden, the camera dies. We didn't realize it, and 45 minutes had passed, and we'd had this interaction going on with this child. And then it, all of a sudden, he went away, but we heard at the end of the hallway, we heard Gypsy's name being called. We look up the hallway, and we see this, this apparition run from one side of the hallway to the other side of the hallway. So we go running up the hallway and, and go into this room. This happened to be the room where the headmaster stayed, so he had his own bathroom. And as you enter his apartment or his room, he actually kind of had a little sitting room, then his bedroom, and then a bathroom. So he had a huge room because most of the rooms just had the bedrooms. When it went into this room, there was a love seat blocking the doorway between the bedroom and the sitting room. And I saw the the apparition shoot into the back room towards the bathroom. So I moved the couch and I, I go shooting into the, the bathroom. Well, there was this little closet in the back of the bathroom that led to a secret wall in behind the, the thing. And that's where I lost him crawling into that, that secret wall. But Ken has been seen and heard from by several people. We we set up trigger objects like balls and, and things in the hallway. Uh, Cheryl, you could probably elaborate on the ball story. I was uh, recording when we were in there. You could hear a bouncing ball on the EVP. And it sounded like a, a one of those, uh, not like the big inflatable balls, but kind of like a little ball just bouncing. Boing, boing, boing. I couldn't explain it. There was nothing making that sound while we were there. The, the thing about that was that was the following year. The ball was still in the hallway, but somebody had flattened it. They, it had no air in it. And as soon as I said, oh, look, there's the there's the ball. I said, oh, it's flat. The bouncing stopped. Whoa, that's weird. And I have all that on EVP. And I just I just had it on my phone. I just turned on the recorder. Uh-huh. We're through. Yep. It was kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not used to hearing somebody say that they picked up an EVP of a ball bouncing to begin with, and then to actually have a ball there, but one that can't function in that way. And then when you make that comment for it to stop, it's just, I don't know, it's weird. It's almost like they were like, oh, that's right. I can't make it bounce, so I better stop. <laughs> it's just... I, I mean, just stopped as soon as I said, oh, it's flat. You know, Dennis, you mentioned that this apparition went behind this secret wall and it's uh -huh. this child. I don't know. It makes you wonder, is it just that he was hiding in this place or is, was he leading you to something that might have happened there behind this yeah, secret I wall? I, did, I didn't really finish that story, did I? Uh, as it went on, I, you know, that was during during one of my events. So I later on I did some research and I was able to find that there was a, a Ken. The Ken came with some psychological problems. He, he had some issues at home and, and things going on in his life. So he was a problem coming into it. He was pretty much his self-esteem and everything was destroyed to begin with. He stuttered as well. And the uh, headmaster, I don't know what they call him, uh, you know, they kind of, there's a headmaster on each one of the floors that runs the dorm or something. Well, he used to make fun of him. Hmm. So all the kids in the dorm figured he could make fun of him. They did too. So he was constantly being picked on. He's one that I suspect, and I, I looked and looked and looked. 
I kept coming up with dead ends, but I, I have a feeling that he was one of the suicides that mm-hmm. took place. Later on, he ended up killing himself over, because he couldn't take that. Being bullied. Mm-hmm. Well, it happens today, so I wouldn't doubt it happened back then. So I, I suspect that that's the reason he's still there. It's, it's sad because every now and then I get a few people that will join one of my events. And one thing I do not allow is provoking Good. and belittling the spirits. And I don't care if they're, you know, I, I, I just don't put up with it. And you, I, I had one instance where the guy came in and, and started belittling Ken without even knowing the story behind Ken. And I, I had to stop him from doing that because Ken had been through enough abuse in his lifetime sure. that he didn't need to have it in the afterlife, too. And, and trust me, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm a skeptic believer. I, mm-hmm. I really have soul before I'll ever go to, you know, I, I'll try and validate and prove anything scientifically before I'll ever jump to a paranormal con- conclusion. I'm not one that believes in orbs and, and all this other stuff, although I have seen stuff that I can't explain. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not like you see the guys on TV where, where everything's, oh my God, that's, that's uh, Father O'Malley coming back to life and he's getting ready to haunt us because I saw a dust orb or something. Yeah, I'm the same way. I've had enough experiences in my life that I know there's something out there going on that I can't explain, but I don't know necessarily that it is a ghost or I'm a skeptic as as well when it comes to that stuff. I was going to ask you, since Ken was known to stutter, has he stuttered in any of the EVP that you've picked up with him? Never. Interesting. Maybe he doesn't do that in the afterlife anymore. No. Another thing, too, that you'll pick up occasionally is not so much at Uthorn, but we've had it happen, especially over at the Abbey, is the EVPs are in German. And come to find out, the nuns, there was 18 sisters originally that, that were there with Father Bradley when they opened up the, the abbey. And basically, the, they were hardworking women. These, 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 they cooked for everyone. They did all the laundry for everyone. And they were also teachers. I mean, they worked their tails off. But they weren't allowed past the second floor. They could go up on the first and second floor. The interesting part was they were all from Germany. They, they didn't speak English. Mm. I always love it when people pick up EVP that are in a different language because then you know there's no shenanigans going on there. Right, and we didn't know that correlation. Another thing that was very interesting, too, about the Abbey, and we didn't know this, kind of my co-founder, I, I don't know, Rich. Rich. Yeah, the half of the Paragesers. Yeah, we're, we're known as the Paragesers. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, Rich was doing some research, and we come to find out Cat eye marbles were originated at the abbey. One of the priests were was blowing glass and put in the little cat eye effect, and it caught on. And that became, uh, I think it was Marx ended up buying the patent rights from him, and he sold the patent rights for cat eye marbles to a toy company. But they were they originated by one of the monks there at the uh, at the abbey. Oh, I love factoids like that. That's so cool. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. We were doing some investigation down in the basement. Was that the kitchen area or down the oh, hallway? Oh, the abbey? Yeah. Yeah. The monastery. The, yeah, and the, down by the potato cellar. Uh-huh. We had our motion sensor lights going down one hallway, our millimeter and K2 in the center of the room, and another motion detector light at the other end. The light went off on the far end of the hallway. Then in the middle of the room, the millimeter K2 went off. Then the motion sensor light went off down the other hallway. And I'm looking at it, and we're, you know, also somebody 
had seen the smoke at that time. There was like something like a mist in the room. And I'm watching down the hall and I can see this shadow kind of peeking around the corner right after all these lights went off. And, and I'm like, okay, somebody's peeking around the corner at us. I want to go check it out. So I get up and one of our friends that is there with us, Anthony, he's like, you're not going alone. Because, well, women aren't supposed to be down there anyways, you know. And, and that's where the apparently angry monk or whoever they claim priest to be, or priest or whoever it is, is down down there in the potato cellar, which has a, it's known to be, you know, people, some people just won't even go there. They won't go down there. I'm walking down the hall with Anthony and we can see the, I see the dark on dark, you know, how, how it's really dark down the hallway, but there's this darker part. You know, that's down at the end. Can I, am I explaining that right? There's it makes dark. sense to me, yes. Okay, so you, you, there's dark, but then there was like a shadow. It was a shadow figure down at the end of the hall. Yeah, I mean, when people describe it, they say, you know, it's it almost, it's as if it eats up so much of the light that it's darker than dark. Right, so that's what I was seeing. And then that, that darkness started moving towards us. And in that hallway, there was just this one small little window, and this is in the basement that went to the outside. So it let in a little bit of light from the parking lot streets. I'm not even sure what the, just a small amount of light. Well, then that shadow totally blocked out the light from that window. And from there just went whoosh right up into my face. Whoa. Right in front of me. Didn't touch me or anything. Just right in front of my face where it just blocked out all the light. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm done here now. (laughs) (laughs) But it was just interesting. I mean, just I hadn't ever had an experience like that before. Just the correlation, too, with the lights going off, the meters going off in sequence. And sure. then we see the shadow feeling like, I was feeling like there, he was looking around the corner going, what are they doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of mad that we were there. And yeah, that was pretty interesting. Did you have any, Sean, any stories about I have quite a few. But one of the ones that applies directly to the monastery in the basement Four of us were setting up motion sensors down the hallway. One person was focused down the hallway with a FLIR image camera. We asked Robert, one of one of the investigators, to set some motion sensors further down the hallway. And as he put it down and then started to re- return to us, within the uh, the image of the, the camera, they saw somebody turn in and start following him. And it was it was ex- extremely incredible, at least from the investigators uh, that that I was with uh, perspective, because he wasn't in the hallway until he had gotten to a certain point, turned around, and then it seemed to follow behind the investigator that had just placed these uh, objects down. Wow. Yeah. My best experience there personally, I believe, it was the Abbott room that you were referring to, where he has his sitting room mm-hmm. and then his mm-hmm. bedroom. So I approached in from the sitting room, and as I was approaching the doorway into his bedroom. I felt a pressure on the chest pushing me away from that doorway. It did not want me to enter that doorway. It was a very tight feeling. Did it feel like a hand was on you or just a full like pressure? Almost like chest saying, no, you're not coming in here. Oh. That pushed, you know, kind of back. Mm-hmm. That, that tend to happen a lot to women in that particular area because the sacristy was back there. Oh, okay. And that priest would get, get together and... Closets are still there. They, you know, they were like all had individual closet spaces and drawers and stuff where they could keep their Bibles, their rosaries, their neck things, and, and their robes and all their personal belongings and get ready for mass. Women were not allowed beyond that doorway back to that hallway, and that was also where the 
that had Abbott stayed. So absolutely no women back in that area. And so anybody, any women especially that ended up in the sacristy, they get their hair pulled, they get pushed. They always had the experience of somebody touching or, or that they didn't belong in that area. I had never heard of any men having any problem. Yeah. One thing you do when you walk back there, and it happens a lot, is you'll catch a great big whiff of cherry tobacco or yeah. something yeah. like that. Oh, yeah, in that room, definitely. All of, all of us, I think, have experienced yeah. that. That's interesting, because usually that coincides with cigars being smoked. So you would think in an abbey, maybe you would smell incense, but not something that would be tobacco smoke. Sean, I was going to ask you, you had mentioned earlier that you'd seen a full-bodied apparition there. Can you describe what it looked like? We had a, uh, quite a lo- long session. It was about two and a half hours um, in the basement. And it's near, was it the refrigeration unit? Is that the meat locker? Yeah, the meat yeah. locker area. And I was, uh, in this case, I, I, I do, um, I'm, unlike Dennis, I do claim to have some, a gift. And I was able to see a gentleman that was leaning on one of the thresholds. And he was just standing, you know, he was just leaning there watching us for a longest period throughout the whole session. I, I, I explained it to everybody for a longest time. Then the next team that came in to sit in that same location, um, without me telling them that I what I had seen in that location, took a flare image camera and they captured something in that same spot, which was really validating for me. So I was like, I was kind of, I was, I'll be honest, I was doubly in shock at that point because this was back to my first investigation in the location, and not only did I since something that was captured, I was I was surprised that that this was really something that was truly happening to me. That I could sense something that they could cap, capture. That's not the only time I've seen something because in the Ula Thorn Hall we had quite an experience. Um, there were four investigators of a um, on the second floor of the, the Ula Thorn Hall. One, Robert, one of the other investigators, saw a boy, and at the same time that he saw it, I saw a, a boy probably about three and a half, four foot, going by one of the walls. And then he proceeded to go by one of the windows. And that's when I saw him a little bit better. And not only did we see him, we were able to track him through EMF. As he proceeded down the hallway, the EMF, the Milagos was, I I believe it was 3.6, where it was normally standard. Zero. There's no power generally in Ulithon Hall at all. And we followed him down probably at least four or five rooms. And it was so incredible that not only did we see it, but it also validated with EMF that should not have been there. Wow. <laughs> that just amazes me. We were amazed as well. Another story I'll tell you, I, I didn't have it personally, but the events coordinator that I used to work with to set up these events and whatnot, she's no longer with the Abbey. She pursued another better suited job for her in Denver. So she left the Abbey, but she one day was sitting in her office and this other gal in the front office kept getting a phone call on her on the uh, switchboard. And she say, hello, this is the Abbey, blah, 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 blah. And the phone would go dead. So she'd hang it up, and then the phone would go ring, ring, ring. She'd pick it up. Hello, this is the Abbey, and the phone would go dead. After the third time, she realized that it was coming from the basement phone downstairs, 
Well, they had just gone through a big transition, taking out all the phone system and updating it to a, a new phone, phone line system. And all the phones from downstairs had been ripped out. So she goes into the events coordinator. Her name was Patty Joe, and says, hey, will you take take a walk with me downstairs? I keep getting this strange phone call, and it comes coming from the basement. So together they went on down into the, the basement. And when they got to the bottom of the stairs, they could hear a phone ringing. So they followed the sound of the phone, and it took them into the monks' chapel area. They had a mock mock chapel with their, their um, altar down there and whatnot. And in that monk's chapel, that's where they ended up storing all the old electronics that were in the building, the old computers and phone system and, and whatnot. So they could hear the phone ringing in, the, in, in this room. So they went on back and then flipped on the light. And back behind the, these uh, little office dividers is where they had most of the computer stuff and the phone stacked. So they could t- tell that it was coming out of that corner. And Patty Joe went around the divider and realized she saw the phone sitting on top of the box and the plug un- unplugged sitting <laughs> on top of the box with it. I was hoping you weren't going to say that. This was a maintenance problem. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Didn't you get an EVP with somebody saying hello to you as well, Sean? Like Several, actually. Like calling you a little times. boy or something? Oh, Yes, the um, I thought that was creepy. The very, the, the very friendly gentleman in the basement. I was changing some lights out um, during the investigation. We had the DVR set up, and I went to go change something out down the hallway, and I saw something I couldn't identify exactly what it was. So I backed out of the area, and I, I happened to be recording at the same time, and it seemed to be very friendly because he called me a sissy little boy at that point. <laughs> so. That's what she's indicating. Gotcha. Not exactly too kind, exactly. No. uh, But uh, needless to say, the lights got exchanged and uh, changed out irregardless. Probably very quickly. Yes. (laughs) So, Cheryl, tell me a little bit about photography. A friend of mine and I, well, I I kind of started to do seminars about paranormal photography, and that's why it's that day you actually take just to educate people on when you're either looking at your own photos or looking at something maybe somebody else posted during a paranormal investigation, what kinds of things could be happening that caused this weird thing, whatever it may be, to show up in your photos. And one of the interesting things that we always bring up is uh, pareidolia. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I have, kind of like where your eyes try to make faces out of things, or just because certain colors are all together, it makes you think there's something there that isn't actually there. Right, and so that happens a lot, where people can see faces, and we discussed that, and then the way the light reflects off of objects. We do a whole thing on um, orbs, and... It's kind of funny. We, we just say, you know, don't start throwing the tomatoes. We're going to discuss orbs. <laughs> um, and, and what can cause orbs? You know, what is it? You know, can it be dust, bugs, moisture, uh, you know, whatnot, and how that, you know, when you're taking photos, how that even one little tiny speck of dust and you're just taking it right at the right time and that dust floats in front of your camera lens it can show up to be a huge orb and a lot of different things that what could it be so let's try to figure out what could be causing this weird photo before we say it's oh oh oh, that's uncle joe 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm just going through a lot of different things that, you know, in, in photography that could be causing that. And my friend Jim and I started doing it. I just started it as a little one where I just was giving handouts and it just kind of grew where we would go to paranormal conventions. Dennis heard Jim and I doing um, the first one. very first one because um, I had done that just with a very, very small group. So I created this paranormal photography seminar just with a really small group and did paper handouts. One of my friends asked me to go to the annual paranormal convention and, and do that up in Cripple Creek. And I'm like, I'm not, I can't do this in front of all these people by myself. What <laughs> Photographer and also paranormal investigator, you know, Jim. And I'm like, hey, Jim, you want to do this with me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dennis heard us up there, and then he invited us to present it at the. She looked so nervous, so I had to make her do it again at my one last. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's it's just not really like scientific based. Going into more photography and you know the pixelation and mm-hmm. paradoxia and the lens flare and it, just all aspects of it, and then. Okay, if you can't explain it away, okay, that was interesting. Well, I love that you do that because nowadays it is so much harder when you see these pictures. I tend to not believe anything unless I actually was there and I either took the picture or I'm standing next to the person who took the picture and they show it to me immediately and we're like, whoa, that's kind of weird. And so it's nice to have that you're giving some of these tips about how to debunk some of this stuff because there's so much that they can use out there with these apps and things to put in what looks like a ghostly image that most of the time when I see stuff, I'm like, I'm sure it's just faked. And there are, and I don't, I don't know why, but there are so many people that want to post something up there that's faked. And I'll even have people, you know, message me a picture. Oh my God, what do you think about this? And I'm like, I need some background. What was exactly. Temperature. Was, what was the moisture level? What was the lighting? What camera did you use? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Smoking a cigarette. Yeah, that happens mm-hmm. a lot. Oh, and, you know, cause that could be your lens strap falling in from the camera. And also, is, what was going on? Why did you happen to take a picture of a closet? You know, whatever. <laughs> you just happened to catch that, taking a picture of something that most people wouldn't take a picture of. Exactly. You know, so why were you taking a picture of that? What, what caused you to take a picture of that? Were you sensing something? Were you doing an investigation? Were you having the detectors go off? You know, I get all these people sending me photos. And I'm like, did you take three in a row? And did you? <laughs> and then I don't really either. I'm like really skeptical. I don't believe all of them. I see. I want to know the whole history, the background of why that photo is and all the inf- other information. Well, it's exactly like you said, Diane. You kind of got to be there in order to make the call because you don't know all these details. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just it's just so easy for people to fake things or just like you said, you catch the right angle of something and it's and you don't even realize sometimes that you might have a light behind you that just happens to be reflecting in such a way and then it bounces off of your camera. And it's just, you know, maybe that's why you have that light anomaly. So pictures I just get really, really skeptical about. Yeah. And even with the cameras, you know, you get the light hitting the inside of your lens the correct way you're mm-hmm. gonna get nice big green orb and then certainly like with iPhones I've seen that green dot happens a lot in a lot of photos it's just all figuring out where it's coming from and how it works um, and we, we also have gone to seminars and just for fun we'll put up our green screen and we have a bunch of backgrounds of different haunted places and someone picks out what they want 
So we'll take a picture of them at the green screen and then put them in Waverly in Hills. the photo. Yeah, in front of Waverly Hills as a ghost. <laughs> that's great. Here. So yeah, it's just kind of uh, something fun to do. And Dennis, could you share your website with everybody again? Simplyghost.com. And is that the best place to contact you if people wanted to talk to you? Yeah, it's Dennis at Simply Ghost is my email. Okay. Simply Ghost on uh, Facebook. Simply Ghost on Skype. He's <laughs> just Simply Ghost. Yeah. Simply Ghost. Yeah, it's just that simple. Well, Cheryl and Dennis, I want to thank you for joining me. And also, Cindy and Sean, thank you for joining us as well and sharing all of your experiences. I know the listeners are going to love it. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, enjoy your show, by the way. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right. Well, you guys have a great night. And again, thank you so much. Thank you, Diane. Thank you. Take care. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. Just based on the experiences of Cheryl, Dennis, Sean, and Cindy, it would seem that clearly some unexplained activity is going on in the various buildings on this property. Are some of the boys from the boarding school still here in the afterlife? How about monks and nuns? Is Holy Cross Abbey haunted? That is for you to decide. Cannon City is a place that we would always talk about because Supermax is down there. So we've always thought of it as kind of a prison city. But this definitely gives us a reason to go on down there, not only to check out the Abbey, but you have to see the Royal Gorge. It is gorgeous. I'm afraid of heights. So going across the bridge was a very tense thing for me, but it's just gorgeous. We'd love to have you guys check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Nicole wrote me to let me know that she and her boyfriend are going to be going on a Disney cruise to Alaska in September, and they're going to be stopping in Skagway. So she was so excited because she just listened to the Skagway episode. And they are going to be stopping by the Red Onion Saloon to do the Ghosts and Good Time Girls tour. So can't wait to hear about that, Nicole. Make sure you let us know how it goes. Josephine wrote to say, Hi, Diane. I've been binge listening to all the past episodes for several weeks and absolutely love this podcast. Thanks so much for going through the history and haunts in such depth and detail. I'm currently listening to episode 224, Haunted Cemeteries number 4, and I'm super excited that I can help you nail down with the symbol on a headstone that Patrick Keller had sent to you. And this is that one that had like the three legs that were coming out of the head that looked like it had wings for ears and snakes coming out of the head as well. It was a really weird looking design. Not sure if someone else had already chimed in or not, but I know what it is. It's called a trinachia, or it could be trinachia, I'm not sure. And it's a symbol of Sicily, Italy. Being Sicilian, born there but raised here in the U.S., I grew up with that symbol all around me. And then she said a quick Google search will give you more information. So thank you for clearing that up, because I was like, God, that's such a weird looking thing that Patrick got a picture of in the Natchez Cemetery. So now we know. This weekend, I'm going to be heading up to the Haunted America Conference in Alton, Illinois, really looking forward to it. For those of you who are executive producers and in the HGB Losers Club, you can be guaranteed you're going to be getting a lot of live videos this weekend. I'm going to try to hit up some haunted locations in St. Louis, some cemeteries, and of course, I'll have some live stuff from the actual conference. I'm going to see if I can get some interviews with some of the speakers and hopefully put that together as one of the bonus episodes as well. For those of you who can't make it this year, be thinking about joining me next year in Alton, Illinois. It's always a lot of fun. Have some reviews to share from Apple Podcasts. First up is B. Michener. This review is way overdue, five stars. I found this podcast while I was looking for something other than music to listen to while at work. I work in a college library buying books and doing data entry, so I spent a lot of hours doing what would ordinarily be tedious work. I decided to give podcasts a try and look for something that dealt with the paranormal. This was the first one that popped up. I must say, I love everything about this podcast. I love history and the paranormal, and this podcast is a great mesh of the two. 
Diane and Denise provide in-depth research of the locations and hauntings along with the history. I just finished episode 120 of the Dumas Brothel and have been listening to this podcast since mid-April. Admittedly, I wasn't too fond of this moment oddity segment when I first started listening, but as I went through the episodes, it quickly became my favorite segment, aside from the main portion, of course. Now that I've done my due diligence and have finally left a review for your excellent work, I could start episode 121 with a clear conscience. Well, thank you for doing that. We appreciate it. Lindsay loves Mickey, frightfully endearing, five stars. The most lovely marriage of spook and charm. I take a fall trip with my fiancé every year where we stay in a town with lots of haunted history, so this is exactly up my alley. I appreciate the well-researched episodes and warm chemistry between the hosts. Well, thank you, Lindsay. And Vanbar04, love HGB five stars. I've been listening for a long time now, and I'm still completely fascinated. Love this show. Well, thank you. If you haven't left a review for the podcast yet, please consider doing so. I really appreciate them. I want to thank you guys for joining me for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the graveyard, Erin Peel. She's going to be getting a niche wall. Julia Miller's back again, and she's joining us for a spot on the niche wall as well. And Matthew Deegan's going to have a mausoleum being built for him. Also would like to thank Melissa Potter and Jade Lewis for both of you increasing your pledges. That means you both are getting dug up and moved into a new location. Melissa's going to have a chest tomb and Jade a garden crypt. Thanks, everybody. Oh, boy, Mort, you have a lot of work building mausoleums and digging up people. You better get to it. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.